Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 227, Gregory the Fourteenth. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So after a short papacy last week, we have another short one today. It's not as short as last week, but it's pretty short. Today's Pope was born Niccolo Sfondrati on February 11th, 1535. He was premature, and the resulting health problems left him with issues his entire life. His mother passed away when he was three years old, and his father, Francisco, who was a Milanese nobleman, entered the clerical life once his wife had passed away. He served in various positions in the papal bureaucracy and was created a cardinal by Pope Paul III. He was appointed Bishop of Cremona in 1550 when Niccolo was just 15 years old, and two weeks after entering his diocese, he died. So Niccolo, now an orphan, although the orphan of a cardinal, and not illegitimately so, he followed in his father's footsteps. He studied law in Pavia, and at age 14 was given the position of abbot of an Olivetian monastery. Now, a lot of young nobles in the Renaissance were given titles that they probably didn't deserve, but Niccolo was not just some prince. He was really dedicated to church reform. He lived a modest, pious life. One of his mentors, St. Alexander Sali, helped encourage him in the pursuit of holiness and in really influenced his efforts in reform. Niccolo's family was one of the most important in Milan, and so he mixed with the high society of the Milanese and was well regarded. In, in particular, he knew and was friends with St. Charles Borromeo. He was really respected, too, by the Spanish ruler of Milan, King Philip II. And this led to many of the Milanese and Spanish backers pushing for Niccolo to be named the Bishop of Cremona, his father's old diocese even though he was too young canonically to be ordained a bishop. Pope Paul IV refused because he was too young to be ordained a bishop, but once he died, his successor, Pope Pius IV, and his nephew, St. Charles Borromeo, made it happen. And so he was appointed bishop in July of 1560 at the age of 25. Now, one of the big things that set the now bishop, Nicolos Fandrati, apart from his predecessors in that role and his contemporaries was his commitment to live in his diocese. We've seen in the past how so many high-ranking clerics just wanted the title and didn't think about the care of souls. It was a scandal. But Bishop Sfandrati was committed to the pastoral care, and he believed firmly that he had to be resident in his diocese. But unfortunately, before he could really get going, he got called away to the Council of Trent. Now there he participated as a zealous reforming bishop, and his insistence on the necessity for bishops residing in their diocese actually caused him not to advance in the church. There were a lot of pressures coming from the nobles in Milan to make him a cardinal, but he disagreed with the Pope on exactly how essential it is for a bishop to reside in his diocese. They, it's not necessarily a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. He was just really, really fervent about it, and that kind of ruffled some feathers. But he asserted that truth that comes from God is more important than advancement, and so he was not made a cardinal. Now, when the Council of Trent was concluded, Bishop Sfondrati returned home and got to work. He, he called the clergy together. He read them the decrees of the council. He began the process of implementing them right away. His model for this was the now Archbishop of Milan, Cardinal St. Charles Borromeo. The two were neighbors and friends, and their zeal for reform led both dioceses, Milan and Cremona, to flourish. But Bishop Sfondrati didn't have very good health, and he didn't have the vigor of his neighbor, and so his activity was not as fruitful as that of St. Charles Borromeo. Nevertheless, he was active. He visited the parishes of his diocese. He worked on the reform of the clergy. He built a diocesan seminary. And after several years as a reforming bishop, his popularity with King Philip II and his own brothers lobbying in Rome finally bore some fruit. He was named a cardinal by Pope Gregory XIII on December 12, 1583. 
Now, being a cardinal was hard for someone with poor health. The travel back and forth to Rome could be a real pain, but it did have some positives. In Rome, he became good friends with St. Philip Neri. And each time he visited the city, he spent some time strengthening his faith and his relationship with the joyful Roman saint. But the back and forth was still tough. Now, one such occasion of being pulled in two happened in 1590. Cardinal Sfondrati had just returned to his diocese when news reached him in August of the death of Pope Sixtus V. And so in September of 1590, he returned to Rome and he participated in the conclave that elected Pope Urban VII. Now, because of his popularity with the Spanish, Cardinal Sfondrati's name was out there among the cardinals as a possible candidate. But in the end, of course, as we know, Pope Urban VII was elected. And then he died, like, right away, 12 days later, as we heard last week. And so a second conclave began in October of 1590. This conclave was long. Most of the promising cardinals were too polarizing. The Spanish were still the most influential. So the conclave settled on Cardinal Sfondrati. He was finally elected in December of 1590, and he took the name Gregory XIV after Pope Gregory XIII, who had named him a cardinal. Now, the new reforming Pope Gregory was not really ready for such a big job. He was pious and a reforming bishop, but he was not really adept in the ways of papal bureaucracy and international politics. Plus, he was pretty old and sick. And so, knowing his weaknesses, he appointed his nephew and other advisors he could trust to run things for him on the political side while he was focused on more spiritual matters. But the arrangement wasn't a great one. His nephew was even less prepared than his uncle and took a lot of power into his own hands and didn't use it well especially as Europe was facing a pretty serious geopolitical situation. And the biggest thing on the new Pope's desk was this conflict in France. If you remember from a couple episodes ago, there was a war going on over the succession of the French throne. Henry of Navarre had the legal claim to succeed, but he was not a Catholic. And the Spanish backed a family that was fighting to prevent him from succeeding. They're called the Catholic League. And we left off here, there was this total stalemate. Henry of Navarre had kind of promised to become Catholic in order to succeed to the throne. He quipped famously that Paris is worth a mass, but he hadn't done so yet. Sixtus, the predecessor of Pope Urban, had started the process of sending papal troops into Rome to assist the Catholic League in defeating Henry of Navarre. And then on top of that, he had Henry of Navarre excommunicated, but the stalemate continued. Now, meanwhile, back down near Rome, there were still problems with bandits, disease, and the lack of food. Pope Gregory tried to alleviate the situation, even giving blanket amnesty to bandits if they gave up and went to fight in France, but he was fairly ineffective. Eventually, the Pope had to call in help from the Spanish to root out the bandits and bring them to heel, which did eventually start bearing fruit, but it was a bad situation. In Rome itself, the Pope appointed five new cardinals, including his nephew, but he wanted to appoint a sixth, and that sixth was meant to be St. Philip Neri, but the Pope couldn't convince him to agree to be named a cardinal. Now, despite that his desire to promote such holy and reforming priests to the cardinalate, reflected his general devotion to reform in Rome. He continued many of the practices he had undertaken in his own diocese. He particularly supported the Jesuits and other reforming religious orders, and he made sure that bishops had to reside in their own diocese. He had particular care for native people in mission countries. He tried especially to protect Filipino natives from being enslaved by Spanish colonial rulers. But his papacy was not to last very long. In September of 1591, only a few months after he was elected pope, he suffered badly from kidney stones. He held on a little longer, he seemed to rally, then didn't get much better, and eventually he died in October, October 16th, 1591. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by Pope Innocent IX, but we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Popham. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.